this is the uh, called the fourth psalm of uh, penitence. Um, it is probably it's usually recognized as the uh, the greatest of the those types of psalms, and so uh, we're going to focus on that. And I'll give you the the caveat that there is no way in the world in one sermon I could say everything there is to say about this psalm. So uh, there will be things left unsaid in the process. And some of you might still think I said too much. So, all right. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise." Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Jesus, as our prophet, speak the truth to us. Reveal our need for salvation and your plan of salvation to us. Jesus, as our priest, comfort those who are guilty or afflicted through your sacrifice for us. Jesus, as our King, lead us, protect us, 
and discipline us according to our need. And we ask this because of your steadfast love and mercy. Amen. In our day and age, thanks to media, we are all too acquainted with the reality of political scandals of all kinds, but I will focus on a couple to kind of whet our appetite. And this is going to create cognitive dissonance for me, so hang on a second. Okay. <laughs> My mind is a very fragile thing, okay? We're familiar with candidate Bill Clinton, for instance, and all of the allegations that came up and how none of those really seemed to have mattered much at all in the process. And then later on, when he was President Bill Clinton, we knew of the very large investigation that surrounded allegations with regard to him and an intern in the White House. We're very familiar, perhaps, with those words that he spoke at one of the press conferences, I did not have sex with that woman. Not sure exactly what that means. Maybe it means he had sex with other women. But it was a big scandal. A scandal that didn't undo him. Although we think of Gary Hart, a different candidate whose whole uh, primary run for the presidency was undone by the uncovering of his affair. We think of John Edwards, perhaps, the National Enquirer of all places is the, uh, the, pa- the paper that revealed that he had a love child by his mistress. So we're very familiar with political scandals of all kinds. But these had nothing on David's. David's was a big political scandal, in part because David was, in a sense, one of the leaders of the church not just the king. As king, he was supposed to, according to Deuteronomy 17, write out God's law at the beginning of his reign, and he was to continue to study God's law because he was, he was a king who was under God's law. He was not like the kings of the nations around them who were basically a law unto themselves and could do whatever they wanted, and it was okay. David was supposed to be obedient to God first. And David wasn't. The whole background of this psalm is the experience that David had with Bathsheba. An experience that started because David was not where he was supposed to be. If you go back to 2 Samuel, you see that the time when all the kings went out to war, David stayed home. His armies didn't stay at home. David stayed at home. And because he was probably bored and had nothing to do, there he is upon his rooftop when he spies Bathsheba and decides he would like to have Bathsheba. And then it just got worse. Not only was it a sexual scandal, but it also eventually became a murder scandal. Because to hide the evidence of his sin he had Uriah essentially killed on the battlefield by withdrawing all the rest of the men at a pivotal moment in the battle so that Uriah would be surrounded and killed. David thought he got away with it. And that's until Nathan showed up, told him a story 
we picked up there in, in 2 Samuel with the revelation of who that wicked man was. And so when Nathan says, you're the man, it wasn't in a positive sense. It was, you are the guilty man. David's sin was uncovered. This psalm is the result of God's work in David's life as a result of God uncovering his sin. The big idea this morning is that the Father is rich in mercy to big sinners in the Son. Some the outline may be familiar with you, to you, rather. The first part of this is confess your mess as a sinner. David's psalm here provides a very good example of what confession or repentance is meant to look like, first of all, in conversion, but not limited to that. This is meant to be a, a model for those who already believe in God. Because David already believed in God. He had for decades... He had meditated upon God's word when he was a shepherd in the fields. He was trusting in the Lord when he slew Goliath. This is the cry of a believer. These are the sins of a believer. We are, in a sense, to uh, change Luther's phrase, we are simultaneously saints and sinners. We have received full justification, the pardon of our sins, the, the gift of righteousness, of Christ's obedience. We have that, and yet we continue to sin. And so this psalm is a very important one for us. It should be the lifeblood of us. We remember from Romans 3, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we need this psalm. Let's get into the psalm. First, he starts with this unholy trinity, the first of which is my transgressions, a phrase that he uses two times in this psalm, a word which reveals rebellion, reveals particular acts of breaking God's law. That is the idea of transgressions to cross lines, to break barriers, to do that which you are not supposed to do. And in this particular case, it was adultery. It was murder. Those were the particular acts that David committed. Those may not be the acts that you commit, but you find yourself with the reality that you transgress. You too have transgressions. And so, because he broke the law, God is justified or right to accuse and to judge him through Nathan. God was right to send Nathan because David had a big problem in his relationship with God. Not only had he sinned against Bathsheba, not only had he sinned against Uriah, and I would say not only had he sinned against Joab, who he asked to have, you know, to kill Uriah, essentially. His focus is on, it is against you that I have sinned. Because that's the most important person we sin against. All of us will sin against one another. 
But ultimately, we're sinning against God. For it's His law that we have broken when we sin against one another. And so, my transgressions followed by my iniquities or my iniquity. Three times he, he uses that word iniquity within this psalm, and that speaks not to the rebellion, but really to the perversity, to the depravity, and to guilt. In other words, his sin started from the inside, just as we heard about from James 1 by Marty. In other words, the problem wasn't Bathsheba. She was doing nothing wrong by taking her bath, where everyone in Israel took their bath. The problem was not Bathsheba. The problem was in the heart of David. To possess that which did not belong to him. And so we see that sin, David is confessing that sin is deep inside of himself. He confesses even that he is brought forth in iniquity. And the word there, brought forth, has this picture of writhing in pain, the twisting to point to the twistedness of his heart. In other words, brothers and sisters, sin is not out there. And that if you can simply isolate yourself enough that you will be safe from sinning, that's not true. That can, that can never be the case. One of the church fathers, Jerome, thought that was the case. And so he moved to a cave in the wilderness trying to get away from the sin that was out there. And that's when he had visions of women. And he realized sin was in here and in here, not out there. So this is a picture of David's not, he's not blaming anything on Bathsheba here. He's owning it that not only have I sinned, but my heart is corrupt. It's a deeper problem than he ever imagined. He's talking about original sin. One of those phrases that we sometimes stumble over because we're not exactly sure what in the world it means. And it has to do with our fallen condition in Adam. It is the guilt and corruption that we, it, we've received from Adam as well as the sins that flow out of it. For instance, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto men fell? Yeah, there's some big words there. Unusual words. Okay, old words. Okay, but in other words, what's wrong with us? Okay, what's, what's wrong with our estate, our condition? The answer is the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So because we're united to Adam, he's our representative. We're also guilty of the sin that he committed, just as if our president declares war on Iran, guess what? Whether you want to be or not, you're at war with Iran. Okay, He's our representative before the nations. And so Adam is our representative before God, sinned, and therefore we have, are guilty. Additionally, it says, the want or the lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin. And so now we have a sinful condition, and it, it continues with, together with all the actual transgressions which proceed from it. And so we have a corrupt heart, and out of that corrupt heart flow corrupt thoughts and actions 
and words. Iniquity, that's the second of this unholy trinity. The third part of this unholy trinity is my sin. The idea of missing the mark, missing the way, going off the path, incurring guilt as a result. And it seems to be tied in a lot of the context of Psalm 51 with the idea of the pollution of sin. That sin not only brings us guilt, but it also makes us filthy. That our souls get dirty. But what happens here is that there's the repetition not only of these three words for sin, okay, but the my, that personal possessive pronoun is very important, my. It means that David is owning these things. He's owning his heart. He's owning his choices. He's owning their consequences. He's not pulling a Bill Clinton and just declaring that he didn't do what he actually did. He's owning up to all of it. Instead of avoiding it. Living in denial. And so, rebellion, depraved, and filthy we are. When we recognize that, it's not uh, mysterious to us, it's not surprising to us that when John Newton... For those of you who are there for the latest conference, this is your John Newton fix, okay? John Newton wrote to a young pastor and said, you are a monster. Not because he was a particularly horrible sinner, but because he was an ordinary sinner, an ordinary man. And I, of course, forgot my sheet of paper so I could read from that letter. But suffice it to say that he speaks about the reality of our depravity and the way it breaks forth in particular sins. This is who we are, unfortunately. And Newton wanted him to know that, to remember that as he engaged in ministry. And David understands this, and this is, this is in particular why David fears being cast away from God's presence. He fears of the Spirit departing from him. He thinks that God will abandon him. And there's a sense in which he has good cause for this. What happened to his predecessor? Saul. Saul was rejected by the Lord. And we see in 1 Samuel 16, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And it was because of that harmful spirit from the Lord that he kept trying to kill David. So David knows very well what could happen. And he cries out to God as a result. And so our proper response to learning about our sin and sinfulness is to confess it, to own it. Secondly, we are to receive the work of Christ for sinners. You see, confession is just the first step. It's just admitting you're bad. That's not enough. That doesn't get you out of the the big hole, the pit that you have fallen into, what are we to do with our guilt, with our brokenness, with our pollution? People try a number of things. And you have probably tried a number of things. Okay, You've probably said, I'll feel better tomorrow. Okay, time heals all guilt. (laughs) Okay, some people try this. This is their method of life. You know, if I just wait long enough, I won't feel bad about this anymore. Some people try harder. 
well, I won't let it happen next time, as though my obedience next week takes care of my disobedience this week. That, too, is not a very good solution. We try to do good. We might put more money in the offering plate. We might serve more. We try to make sure that our good outweighs our bad. I was reading a a book by Jared Wilson, and he talks about a cab ride. And the cabbie, he asked the cabbie his name, and he said, Tokar. And he goes, oh, that's an interesting name. Yes, from the Steve Miller song, I'm a Midnight Toker. He, not being American, didn't understand what in the world Steve Miller was talking about and thought it was a really cool name. So anyway, in their discussion, uh, Tokar, Toker, um, realized, you know, was talking about how he recognized he failed. And he actually talked about, well, you know, I hope the good outweighs the bad when it's all done. It's not a really good long-term solution. Okay? When you go before the judge because you have committed a crime, he does not then say, well, you know, what's the rest of your life look like? Let's see how it balances out. No, you're guilty of this crime and you're going to jail. It's the same way with God. Some people try to numb the pain, drugs, shopping, eating, any number of things. And some people try to engage in more and more rituals, thinking that that will remove it. What does David do? It starts off the psalm with, Have mercy on me, O God. He is begging for mercy from God. And the only reason that he would beg for mercy for God is that he is convinced that God is in fact rich in mercy. Abounding in steadfast love. And those are the two things he starts off with in verse 1. According to your steadfast love and abundant in mercy. You are rich in it. And so I'm laying all all my hopes on the fact that you are going to be merciful to me. Because apart from that, I have no hope. Sometimes our real struggle is, in fact, to believe that God will be merciful to me. That's what drove William Cooper insane. That's what caused him, uh, John Newton's friend, uh, the hymn writer, to to eventually kill himself. He believed in God's mercy, generally speaking, but he wasn't sure that God was merciful to him. David is sure that God will be merciful to him. For instance, in Exodus 33, we see, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he revealed himself to Moses on that mountain as a merciful God. And David had that revelation, so he believed that God was a merciful God, and so he's banking on it. We see Paul as well speaking to the Jews within the church in Rome. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness or mercy is meant to lead you to repentance? So the mercy of God is presented clearly in Scripture so that we can be honest with God about our sin, knowing that He is, in fact, 
merciful. And so as you listen to the cries of David here, I want us to see them as prefiguring or anticipating the work of Christ for sinners. The sacrifices that he talks about at the very end, for instance, they're shadows of the fullness that was to come in Jesus. And so he cries out, first of all, blot out my transgressions, and later cries out, blot out all my iniquities. In other words, they're written down. I want them erased. There's a a show that we used to watch occasionally called According to Jim. It had Jim Belushi in it. And it was, in many ways, a very dismal picture of married life and children. Um, And there was one episode where Jim, of course, was wrong, because Jim was almost always wrong. And so his wife got out the great big book of all the times Jim was wrong, okay, and opened it to add another entry into the book. If we're to think about this in that way, I laid on my bed the other morning, not wanting to get up, and I started to do the math in my head. Let's imagine for a second that if we, because we're sinners, and we sin every day in thought, word, and deed, let's just imagine for a moment that we only sinned once in each, three times a day, okay? I know, that's pretty silly, isn't it? So let's just imagine, for the sake of argument, that we sin three times a day. Let's imagine, for the sake of argument, that we live to be 70. Some of you are going, I'm in trouble because I'm already over 70. Um, (laughs) That math, I threw out leap years, so don't worry about it. 76,650. That's a big book. That's just three a day. <laughs> of course, some of those would, you know, we could, probably, we could probably cheat and say, you know, times 150, you know, get that out of the way. Not write it down every time, I'm not sure. But what he's saying is, blot it out. Okay, and that was a practice that they had. They would take an old, useless uh, piece of paper, they would scrub it, get it clean, and then usually they would tilt it and then write again, reuse it. And so essentially that's what David is asking. Remove the list of the charges against me. Hit the delete button, if you will. Okay? And we see, of course, that Christ has taken our transgressions as his very own. He has removed them from our record by placing them on his own. We see in Colossians 1 that that Paul says, "...in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh." God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Look at that. We have trespasses there. Transgressions. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside or blotted out, nailing it to the cross. And so our charges became His charges when He was placed upon the cross. Our sin was placed upon Him. He paid for it. And we are guilty no more. That's the picture that David had and that was fulfilled in Jesus. David continues, Wash me thoroughly. We're not really familiar with this idea sometimes, I think, because of the problem of washers and dryers. Dishwashers. We don't know what it's like to really try and clean anything. Those of you who are older remember these things of washing stuff by hand. 
And that's the idea of this person probably working by a stream or something like that, just rubbing and twisting and trying to get the dirt that has worked its way deep in out. In other words, this is not a superficial problem. It's not hand-washing. But there's, there's a filth to us, but there's a hope here that we will be whiter than snow. That all of the dirt will be removed from us. He cries out in a different way, cleanse me from my sin. This has to do with the idea of ceremonial purity, where you can now appear before the presence of God. He continues that with purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was just a little bush. And they would take a little part of this bush and use it as a brush. And we see in Exodus 12 that that's what they used. They dipped it into the lamb's blood and placed it upon the doorposts to signify that that was one of the homes that the angel of death was to pass over to not inflict punishment and destruction. We see as well in Leviticus 14 that this is used in the, the process of declaring one clean from leprosy. They were to be sprinkled with water and blood with the hyssop and then declared clean. We see in Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so this is not something we do to ourselves, but here in Isaiah, it's something God is going to do. We see the same idea in Jeremiah 2. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. We are like Lady Macbeth. We have blood on our hands and we can't wash it off. Oh yeah, the, the blood was gone. I mean, she washed the blood off, but the stain remained in her heart. She knew she was still guilty. And no matter how many times she washed and she walked around like this, in her mind, there's still guilt. And nothing we can do ourselves can take that away. We need to be cleansed by Christ who shed His blood to purify us as well from our transgressions. It is the blood of Christ that can wash away our sins and make us presentable to God. We see that Peter refers to this in the second verse of his first letter, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for, and here's the key part, Sprinkling with His blood a fulfillment of that promise I read from Ezekiel 36. A promise which John also repeats in 1 John 1.9. That God promises to cleanse us from our iniquities and its pollution in our souls. And he cries out even farther, Create in me a clean heart. Don't just wash my hands, but change me. The, the, the sin is deep within me, and so the change has to happen deep within me. Okay, David's not talking about just forgiveness. As good as forgiveness is. He knows something far more profound needs to take place within him. His twisted heart needs to be remade, to be straightened. So he cries out for that. 
a picture of regeneration. The change of heart that is necessary, but that which we cannot do ourselves, but Jesus promised us. This word create is used in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the animals. God created humanity. And so I think part of what David is trying to communicate with that is that only God has the power to do this. Again, it is not something we do ourselves. And so if you are in Christ, this change of heart has begun. You are a new creation, but it is not yet completed until glorification. In other words, it's not a quick fix. It's not convert and you're done with sin forever as much as you wish you were. So bring your your known sin to Jesus who promises to blot it out, who promises to cleanse you and restore you, remake you. Thirdly, we see confess the work of Christ for sinners. You see, David here culminates with this promise of a positive response to God's amazing grace. It's, It's almost like he was bargaining with God. Show me mercy and I'll do this. Okay, But it is the, the heart, I think, the cry of one who has been redeemed. It is the positive response to God's amazing grace, God's immense love, and His mercy. And so, first off, we see that there will be joy, both public and private. He speaks here, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, not my righteousness, God's righteousness. And so he is taken up in worship. Out of his great gratitude, there's a change that has gone on. And so we see that forgiveness frees us to worship the Father joyfully. In other words, the cry of the heart changed. It went from, I'm guilty, guilty, need mercy, need mercy, to, thank you. You are good. You are merciful. You are kind. You are righteous. And you've shared your righteousness with me. He's freed as well from ritualism to being able to worship in spirit and truth. He speaks here about he's he's casting away bare ritual. You know, God, you're really, ultimately, you're not focused on on these sacrifices. But you're concerned about the heart behind the sacrifices. He said the real sacrifice is the broken heart, the broken and contrite spirit. The sacrifices do no good unless the sinner is broken by their sin and truly repentant. That's what he's getting at. Okay? He's going to talk about a restoration of sacrifices, you know, on the heart of the, of the sinner in his day and age, not future tense. Don't worry, I'm not getting crazy on you. Okay? It's all been fulfilled in Jesus. But he's not anti-sacrifice at this point, but he's anti wrote sacrifice. He's for a heart engaged with God that is broken by its sin. Okay? And so, he recognizes that God makes His Spirit right. 
He makes His Spirit willing. And so he talks about God who delights in truth in the inner being or inward being and the secret recesses. In other words, God is not just wanting right action. Okay? Doesn't, doesn't want to hear just your prayer of, you know, God help me be obedient. But he wants right heart. A heart that obeys out of love, out of faith. And so he, God delights. You want to know one of the things God delights in? He delights in truth, honesty, integrity from the inside that works its way out. And of course, David is not one who can produce this in himself. It's something that God is going to have to produce. This reminds us a lot of Augustine. Give what thou commandest. That is necessary. And so there's a new honesty that begins to emerge in the heart of this redeemed sinner. But again, he's not keeping it all to himself. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, he's going to teach them about the mercy of the Father through the Son. That's what this psalm is about. David is, in part, keeping his promise of teaching transgressors God's ways. He's teaching them about his mercy, which is abundant. He's teaching them how to cry out to him the things that they ought to be crying out, not in a rote manner, but from truly a broken heart, a guilty heart. Okay? He will teach them about God's forgiveness. He will teach them about regeneration, the circumcision of the heart. He will teach them about true religion, the effects of grace. And so David doesn't uh, here just think of himself. But he thinks of himself not just in relationship to God, but also in relationship to God's people. So... Wow. Uh, okay. Father, whomever that child is, help them to be found by the right people. All right. Um, teaching transgressors your ways. And so for us, that means we teach how Christ has fulfilled all of these things, and we're pointing people to Jesus as God's fulfillment of how He is enough to remove our guilt, our brokenness, twistedness, our pollution from sin. But David's also worried about the nation. There's some confusion about this last paragraph. Some think that later on an editor put it in there, but when, we, when I think anyway of what Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel, he talked about how what? Violence and destruction was going to come upon the people because of your sin. It's going to come to your household, David. And so David put not just his own personal life and not just his, his position as king at risk by his sin, but he put the whole nation at risk by his sin. And so this psalm is, in a sense, addressing that. He's crying out that God would not only have mercy on him, but mercy on His people. Because, brothers and sisters, your sin almost never stays isolated to you. 
you don't live on an island. It affects those around you, especially if you are in any kind of position of authority. It affects others. And so part of what we ought to do, and and I think in this example, would be that we pray that our our family, our friends, our church uh, don't suffer for our sin, but that they are the recipients of grace. All right. All of us struggle with guilt at times, even if we're not politicians, precisely because we are guilty. We break the law because we have perverse hearts. And this guilt brings with it pollution and God's just judgment. So what's a poor sinner to do? We are to see that God is rich in mercy and that as a result He presents us with His Son. That we are to receive that sin-bearing Son as the means by which our sin is removed, our hearts are cleansed, and we're acceptable in the Father's sight. Jesus is also pleased to give us an increased desire for worship and to tell other transgressors God's solution to a guilty heart. And so while R.C makes this statement with respect to um, non-Christians, we can also make this statement with regard to Christians. What do you do with your guilt? There's only one thing that really resolves it. Going to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, because our hearts are not yet fully straight, we confess we still have a tendency to try to avoid you when we're guilty. We try to suppress the fact that we are guilty in any number of ways. So I ask that this psalm would really um, help us To not just know intellectually of the greatness of your mercy, but to experience personally the greatness of your mercy. That when we go astray, we would come back. Or more appropriately, cry out for you to find us. So teach us more about your mercy and compassion towards sinners in your Son. So that we would not only experience this, but that we would also be able to recommend this to the people we encounter who are broken by sin by guilt, and don't know what to do. Help us, Father, to teach transgressors your way. Because we have found ourselves that your way is good. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.